Season 3 is getting revved up. Today, we discuss robot Buddhist priests, the world's fastest growing church, and why your church is dying part two. We are live on Tuesday night with a very lovely and handsome audience. Welcome to the Deep End Podcast. Okay, okay, okay. I am really enjoying having a live audience because I am a feedback junkie. I need feedback. I need, I need people to say, wow, that was awesome. No, <laughs> don't do that now. <laughs> Let us know in the comments where you're watching from. Um, I'm always reading the comments. Love the comments. And keep, keep it coming. Also, join us on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. I'll get to that. But be a part of our audience. We have a live audience tonight. And every Tuesday is a new thing for Season 3 of The Deep End. Uh, deep end thedeepend.tv slash tickets. So thedeepend.tv slash tickets. Can we get that full screen so that our audience online can see that? And you can check that out. Uh, no requirements at all to come to the audience. Uh, you don't, what I mean by that is you don't have to come to our church up here in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. You can come from wherever. You could be my neighbor, and you could be sitting here next week. And then one day you can tell your grandkids, I was there. <laughs> okay, like and subscribe us on YouTube. That is uh, where we want you to go as much as possible. Now, listen, Waters Church people. You're subscribed to the Waters Church uh, YouTube. Subscribe, please, to the YouTube, the Deep End YouTube. So, youtube.com slash the Deep End TV. Instagram.com. We have an Instagram. You can follow us there. Facebook.com, the Deep End TV. And all those things are pretty easy. It's whatever social media network you use slash the Deep End TV. And also want to say welcome to our radio audience while listening in on Thursday nights in Woonsocket, uh, AM 1240 and FM 99.3. Lots of audiences out there. So glad that you are listening or watching whenever, however you get this content. It is important that you get it, and I love doing it. Hey, we have a question line that we want you to keep sending your questions in. Now, last week I told you that we are going to do a full hour of question and answer coming from you. So set, keep sending those questions, even though we aren't answering questions yet. We will get to them. Keep sending them in. The 508-316-9333 number is the way to anonymously send in your questions. So that's uh, always open, and you can send them in at any time. And I would say that we're going to prioritize questions that are relevant to the content that we are talking about. Although, if there's not enough of those questions, because I do such a good job talking about the content that you don't have any further questions, you can send in other questions. Whatever questions that you might have, uh, send them in. You can even even ask them in the comments. So the, the comments is an area you can ask questions, although you're just not anonymous there, unless you open a fake Facebook account and go through that rigmarole. I would just suppose that you want to be, if you want to be anonymous, just send them to 508-316-9333. Uh, got some questions last week, looking for more every week. And uh, one of these weeks soon, we will be doing a full question and answer session. So let's get to... Deep End News. Deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. Okay, so what's the Deep End? The Deep End is, first we talk about what's going on in the world, and I just want to bring up news, interesting news articles, religious news articles, quest, uh, articles that relate to our faith, and then we're going to get into the Book of Acts in just a moment. Um, this is actually out of Japan, so this is kind of funny news. I don't know... If you've ever seen anything like this, this is kind of cool, um, kind of weird. Um, evidently, in Japan, 
they are now replacing Buddhist priests with robots. And so uh, this is from breakpoint.org. If someone described a preacher style to you as robotic, you probably, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't consider it a compliment. For worshipers at one Buddhist temple in Kyoto, Japan, however, robot qualities are not a bug of their new clergy. They are a feature. Now, the new priest named Mandar is an actual robot. And for now, his clerical repertoire is limited to delivering the same sermon repeatedly. How about that? But as creators hope to use artificial intelligence to enable it to perform other duties such as counseling. That's interesting. Uh, it is attempting to dismiss the idea of robot clergy as a publicity stunt or an example of Japan's cultural eccentricity. But as an article from Vox suggests, some cultures are more open to re religious robots than others. The article cites specific examples from Asian cultures deeply influenced by Buddhism. The difference between Eastern religions like Buddhism and biblical religions, especially how they understand God and his relationship to humanity, are significant. So this is kind of interesting, if you ask me, that there would be a there would be a robot delivering the sermon and the same sermon every week. Now, if you're, if you're like really one of those kind of old school Catholics, you would probably love this because you would know exactly when to start grabbing your keys and getting the kids ready to get out of the building. Uh, the same sermon. You know when it's going to close. You know when it's going to end. You know how long it's going to be. But I was just thinking, like, this is crazy. Uh, and this is another reason why I am a proud Christian. I thank God that I am a Christian, for heaven's sakes. I don't know audience members. This sounds nuts. Could you imagine, by the way, uh, if this job was replaced by a robot? I was just thinking about that. Like, what if the deep end, you know, what if I wasn't here and we had a robot doing the job? Like that. <laughs> So if you're not listening, if you're only listening, you don't see that there's a robot now in my place doing the Deep End podcast. Um, anyway, I just think that's kind of funny, kind of interesting, kind of crazy. That's what we've got for news. I got some more news, but it's going to tie in to our topic on the Book of Acts in just a moment. Last week, ladies and gentlemen, I made the case that we in America uh, are filled with dying churches. And we have to stop making excuses. Like, this is the thing that we do. We see all these churches closing, like 4,000, 6,000 churches a year are closing in America. Uh, in fact, there's churches uh, closing left, right, and center from old school denominational ties. And um, this is happening at a record rate. But we have to stop. And this is the main message from last week's Deep End podcast was we have to stop making excuses. We have to stop blaming culture. We have to stop blaming Hollywood or blaming the times in which we live or say, oh, it's just not possible to grow the church. And the reason why is because the first century church in the book of Acts, right, they had nothing. They had nothing. They didn't have anything that we have, and yet they got the job done, didn't they? So I was thinking about that. That's what Acts shows us. Before we get to the book of Acts, I want to just replay a highlight from last week. And this highlight is what I talked about concerning how this 120 disciples in, the, in Acts chapter 1 turned the world upside down. So watch this from last week. This is the thing about the Roman Empire. It was illegal, okay, illegal not just to have church. It was illegal to be a Christian. And yet... Within 300 years, within 300 years, the 120 people that Jesus left in the upper room to say, wait for the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses, turned the Roman Empire upside down, took it over to the extent that the emperor in the 300s saw the writing on the wall, Christianity was taking over the empire, 
and said, you know what? Um, if you can't beat him, join him. And so Constantine becomes a Christian, and then he converts the Christian religion into the official state religion of Rome within 300 years. Like 300, 120 people, people. 120 people. No rights, no buildings, no money, no nothing. And the world forever changed. So that's from last week. The fact that 120 people 2,000 years ago received the Holy Spirit and the rest is history. The world was turned upside down. Their story reshaped history. Everything in history is divided by B.C. and A.D. Think about that. Even you non-Christians out there, even you Buddhists, even the Hindus listening, the Jews, listen, A.D., B.C., that's it. That's history in a nutshell. It's surrounding one person's life. What person is that? Not Albert Einstein, who's standing over here on my desk, nice and comfy over here, bobblehead Einstein. Not him, not, not, uh, not Constantine himself, not any Roman emperor, Jesus Christ. This, this poor shepherd from the backwoods of Nazareth. Divided history. And I just, I just say, like, this is why we can't make excuses. If it could happen again back then, it can happen now. We have so much rights. We have so many things going for us in America. There's no excuse why your church should not grow. That was last week. But anyway, I bring that up because there's a new movie out that I want to tell you about. Now, this movie you can watch right after the deep end. This is great because this movie is not in theaters. It's not going to even be on Netflix. Actually, this movie is on YouTube. This is what I love about uh, these new modern ways to watch and uh, see things such as The Deep End. But YouTube is premiering this movie called um, Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. It's available for free on YouTube. Just search YouTube, Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. Be warned if you have children, there's some disturbing imagery. But it is about the fastest growing church in the world. The fastest growing church in the world. Where would you think the fastest growing church in the world would be? Dallas, Texas. Montgomery, Alabama, uh, down in the deep south where everybody's Christian. Nope. The fastest growing church in the world right now is in, ladies and gentlemen, the country of Iran. Iran. Like, you know, you don't really think bastion of Christianity when you think of Iran, do you? But this is from ChristianHeadlines.com. Actually, uh, the title of the article says, the fastest growing church in the world is spreading like wildfire in Iran, large numbers of Iranian Muslims are walking away from Islam and into Christianity, the new documentary says. This is amazing, yes. Thank you for that applause. It gave me a chance to lift my chair up a little bit there. According to Frontier Alliance International Studios, uh, Sheep Among Wolves documentary, inside of Iran, a country where a majority of the citizens are Muslim, one identified Iranian church leader even went as far to say, listen, that, quote, Islam in Iran, is dead. Islam, this is nuts. Like, to me, this is nuts. If you are my age, you know, you know, Christianity in Iran was you know, surviving by a thread. Well, the church leader who remained anonymous for their protection asked, uh, at, uh, stated, quote, God is moving powerfully inside of Iran. The church is growing leaps and bounds. And so this movie you can watch right after, don't go there now, but right after the deep end, Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. I want to play a short clip because... Literally, this is how cool, this is how right on time the Deep End Podcast is. Because exactly what I said last week about no excuses for us not growing in America because of what we have. If it happened again, if it happened back then for the disciples in the Roman Empire with no rights, no protections, no legalities, no no tax-exempt status, no nothing, and they did it, we can do it still today. And guess what? It's happening right now. 
Watch this, a short clip from Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. When I ask most Westerners and I say, you know, what do you picture when you think Iranians? And the vast majority of people, you know, they say, you know, Ahmadinejad, the mullahs, the ayatollahs. They go, you know, I see all of these angry Muslims shaking their fists, chanting death to America, death to Israel and this sort of thing. And the reality is, is that in the country, it's nothing like that. Today, Iran is home to the fastest growing church in the world. It's almost entirely Muslim background. They have no denominational leanings or affiliation. They have no governmental recognition or legitimacy. They have no bank accounts. They have no 501c3s. They have no centralized leadership. They have no Bible schools or seminaries. They own no properties or church buildings, and they possess no assets. On top of that, while being Muslim background, they are, by and large, aggressively and passionately pro-Israel. That is, they love the Jewish people. And on top of that, it's predominantly led by women. What if I told you that Islam is dead? What if I told you that the mosques are empty inside of Iran? Iran that is known as the most radical nation in the world, exporting terrorism, exporting radical Islam. But when you go inside of the country, the mosques are empty. What if I told you that no one follows Islam inside of Iran? Would you believe me? But this is exactly what's happening inside of Iran. God is moving powerfully inside of Iran. The, the ruling class are the religious class, and many of them are religious because that's where the high-paying jobs are. But the majority of the people are just normal, ordinary people. They love God, but they realize, they recognize that Islam is the problem. What if I told you that an evangelist for Jesus came inside of Iran? What if I told you that the best evangelist for Jesus was Imam Khomeini, the Ayatollahs? You might be wondering, what do you mean? How is that possible? Because the Ayatollahs and Imam Khomeini brought the true face of Islam. And when people in Iran saw the true face of Islam, they found out that it was a lie, that it was evil, and that it was deception. Because after 40 years under Islamic law, a utopia, according to them, they've had the worst devastation known in the history, in the 5,000 year history of Iran. That's amazing. That's amazing. So check it out, Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. And I just bring that up because, again, we just talked about this last week. I ran across this today. I was like, I can't wait to share this with the Deep End audience. If God did it back then for the disciples in the 120, he can do it today. And American churches, you have no excuses. You have no excuses at all. It is not the culture. If Jesus can overturn the culture of Iran, Jesus can overturn the culture of America. And I think that Jesus is on the move. I just, I got a feeling. Like, Kanye West is like a devout Christian all of a sudden. I mean, this is nuts to me. He just vowed, said this week, he just vowed that he is no longer going to produce any secular music. He's going to produce Jesus-praising gospel music from this point forward. I think that's amazing. Now, all of you naysayers out there who want to say, well, let's check the fruit. Let's check the fruit. Yeah, calm down. Put your fruit inspection tool down, friend. Just love the guy in Jesus' name. You're not perfect. He's not perfect. When people get saved, they bring a lot of their old life into their new life. That's just how it works, friend. And over the course of time, the Holy Spirit washes them and cleanses them and sanctifies them. And if it's happening for you, it's going to happen for him, just like it still needs to happen for me. So chillax with your fruit inspection. 
and love them into the kingdom. Amen. Okay. All right. So let's get into all this stuff, tying it together with the book of Acts. Okay, so if there is ever a time to talk about the book of Acts, it is now. If these guys with no education, no cultural panache, no tax exemption status could get it done, uh, so can we. Ray Steadman was a fabulous, fabulous uh, Bible teacher in the 1970s um, in the middle of the Jesus movement, which we will talk about in a few moments. But he said this about the church, and I love this quote. He says, the church, operating as it was intended to operate, is the most important body of people in any age, far above and beyond anything else. It is actually, and I love this line, it is actually the secret government of the earth. I love that. The church is the secret government of the earth. And what he means by that is the church has a way of changing societies very covertly, very covert. It just, it, we, we, don't, we don't win cultures uh, by, you know, politicking. We, we don't win the, the lost by getting our quote-unquote chosen president elected. What we do is we just live Christian lives in every facet of our world, and things start changing. And I think about this. You, Christian, where you are, you are not there by accident. You are there on purpose. But listen, you're not going to get the job done if you don't have the Holy Spirit. You're not going to get the job done if you don't have the Holy Spirit. So we talked about that last week, why your church is dying. Now, last week, that was a title, but I decided let's continue this title because we are still only in Acts chapter 1, uh, and this is the title of today's talk is Why Your Church is Dying, Part 2. So again, 6,000 to 10,000 churches. I said 4,000 6,000 earlier. It's actually 6,000 to 10 churches in the U.S. are dying each year. That means about 100 100 to 200 churches will close this week. Now, I, I think that there's a real uh, disconnect, and I said this last week, and I want to reiterate it today, that there is a disconnect between what the church should be doing and what the church is doing. What the church should be doing, what the church is doing. When you, when read, when you read the book of Acts, what I keep seeing as I, as I do this preparation for this talk, right, is that there is so little of what we see in the church today that actually happens in the book of Acts, like, for instance, I'm just going to run down some, some things that we, in church world, like in the subculture church world, we got these activities nailed. Like, we do these all the time, but they don't exist on the pages of Scripture. Like, for instance, there are zero board meetings in the book of Acts. <laughs> Instead, you know what they do? They don't have board meetings. They have prayer meetings. They have prayer meetings. The Holy Spirit speaks, and the mission moves forward. Um, there is zero denominations in the book of Acts. Like, the church was not divided because of small little, you know, extenuating little doctrinal differences over one little thing. So if you don't agree 110% with what I think about salvation and what I think about the Holy Spirit, then we can't talk. You go plant your church and I'll have my church. There's zero of that in the book of Acts. There's no denomination. You know what there is? There are communities who love Jesus and change the world. That's it. Like, that's so cool. There are zero buildings. Instead, there is mission. There are zero. This is a big one for pastors and preachers out there. There are zero ordination moments. You know ordination? You guys know what I'm talking about when I say ordination? Ordination is where they take the guy who wants to be a pastor, and they have him kneel down on the stage, and the guys come around, all the old goombas. They all come around, and they lay their hands on the guy, and they say, okay, we're going to lay our hands. And now, officially, after seven years of education and after seminary has literally put you to sleep for Jesus, okay, now we're going to tell you you can be a pastor. And I just don't see that in the book of Acts. I don't see that in the book of Acts. Last week, I talked about this. This is this in my hand right here. 
is uh, three pages. So one, two, three pages of what a um, what a theological seminary puts their students through to get the degree. And on this list is all the things that they tell these poor kids. This is what you have to do to get the credits for the course so that you can someday graduate and someday maybe get ordained and maybe start actually doing some ministry. And I was looking through this because I was, I've been to seminary, and this actually comes from my seminary, so no, no disrespect, but sometimes we're so disconnected. Like, there's a couple of things on here that they have to do, um, so, such as uh, like planning and leading in worship. Like, I, I don't know about that. Um, administering baptism. Like, I, I understand that, but administering baptism, what's so hard about it? I mean, honestly, you take the person, you say, okay, you believe in Jesus? Okay, ready? Hold your breath. Like, that's it. And then you bring it back up, of course. But uh, there's other things, like leading and performing in a wedding. Again, I just don't see that in the book of Acts. Everybody wants the pastor to marry them. Well, why? I mean, honestly, uh, I need the pastor to be there so I can dedicate my children, I can get married, and then I can get buried. So basically, you want the pastor there for three big moments in your life, when you're hatched, when you're matched, and when you're dispatched, okay? That's it. And then it's like, that's it. We won't come, we won't come around until we really need to settle a couple of things out with you. But uh, ministry to the dying and bereaved, or leading and moderating church min, uh, meetings. Uh, there's so many other things on this. Uh, leading a new members class, dealing with church discipline, excommunication, assist in the coordination of a significant ministry event or initiative. I mean, these, yeah, all right, they're good, but sometimes I think we're just kind of disconnected. Like, here's, here's how it should work as we look at the book of Acts. If you go to the book of Acts and you try to find out how to do church, you're not going to see much. You're not. You know what you're going to see? You're going to see the Holy Spirit speaking to people and raising up people who are like nobodies, and making them powerful people that the somebodies in their generation cannot argue with. Like that's what you see constantly, again and again. The people that God uses, no one says to them, okay, we now approve of you. Now you can do ministry. You know what? That's not how God works. God says, I think I'm going to pour out my spirit on that guy. And then that guy has the Holy Spirit, and he does something powerful for Jesus. And then God looks at this woman and says, on that woman, and she does something powerful for Jesus. It's just this is what we need to be about. Why am I so passionate about this? Because I, I want to get back to this. I, I mean, I love church buildings. I love the fact that we've got modern amenities. I'm not against those things, and I'm not even against these prerequisites to put some guys through the test to see if they really have a passion or a heart for people. I'm all for that. But can we not overdo it to the point where we get so systematized uh, as to what church should be that we literally make no room for the Spirit. And that's why it is so cool, it is so important. We're going through season three in the book of Acts. So we're still in chapter one in the book of Acts, and you'll see on the screen there, I have divided the book of Acts into two sections. <laughs> the two sections are Acts chapter one and then the rest of Acts. That's it. That's the two sections. And so the reason why is because in Acts chapter 2, something amazing is going to happen to these 120 followers. So you see there on the left, I have Acts chapter 1, before the Holy Spirit comes. And what happens in Acts chapter 1 basically is the, the, the disciples come to Jesus and ask, hey, when are we going to restore Israel to its former glory? And Jesus is like, don't worry about that. And then what we're going to talk about today, we talked about that last week, but what we're going to talk about today, the rest of the book of Acts chapter 1, is that they have a church meeting. <laughs> because when we don't have the Holy Spirit, let's have a church meeting, for heaven's sake. And really, it becomes this governmental meeting, and they think about replacing Judas, and they end up casting lots. Who's going to replace Judas? And 
that's basically Acts chapter 1. And then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls. That's next week. We'll talk about that. The Holy Spirit falls, and guess what? The church blows up. It goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Rome to England to New England to America to Latin America. Now it's in Africa, and now it's exploding in China. And guess where else? In Iran. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. The reason why churches are dying today is because they would rather have church meetings and systematized ideas of what they think people should do rather than focus on what the Holy Spirit wants to do in the life of God's people. At the end of the day, it's not his, my church. It's not your church. It's his church. And here's the thing. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're just waiting to die. I mean, that's, that's it. You, there's, a, there's a cool corollary in Scripture, right? Um, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, God whips together some dirt and makes a man. But he's just lying there. He's just lying there, dirt, dead dirt. And what, what happens? The Bible says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Well, sin has distorted that. Sin has kind of taken that out that spirit. And so while we didn't die immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, their spirit was dead. Their spiritual life with God died. Well, when Jesus comes and he rises from the dead and he meets up with his disciples right before the book of Acts starts, think about this. He, he comes into the room with them and the Bible says, what does he do? He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, what sin did to Adam in disconnecting him from God and the power of the Holy Spirit in him Jesus restores through his death, burial, and resurrection so that you can breathe in God again and you can be empowered to do what God wants you to do. Because if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you are just dying inside. You are just slowly dying. And I read about this story. These are, this is a kind of funny story, a little bit more news in this section of the podcast. There's something called atheist churches. I don't know if you know about this, but uh, in 2013, in, the, in Britain, and then also in New York City, atheists started to get the itch to be religious without God. <laughs> so they decided to start something called Sunday Assemblies. And basically what they are is a bunch of former Christians, because it's always like the ang- there's, there's two kinds of atheists out there. There's the atheist that never had faith, never was raised in the faith. They don't know God. And the, I'll tell you something about these atheists. The ones that never knew God, never was a part of the church, they're nice people. I, I don't know if you've met these people, but they're usually decent Americans, nice people. I have no problem with them whatsoever. But those ones that used to be in the church... They're the angry atheists. I don't know if you know this. This is the trend. All these atheist organizations, these Freedom from Religion Foundation people, these Americas again, Americans for the Separation of Church and State, these angry atheist leaders, they're all former Christians. It's funny to see that. But anyway, um, these former Christians decided, well, you know, we need church. So they formed these atheist assemblies. Well, guess what's happening? This is in 2013 they started. It's 2019. They're dying. They're closing their doors. Uh, and I read this article in The Atlantic. They tried to start a church without God for a while. It worked. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you can start a church without God. And this, is, this story runs down this, this, uh, this woman's uh, history with the atheist assembly. Her name is Justina Walford. She shed, she shed her faith when she was a young child after going overseas on a missions trip and seeing um, that there's no way, this was her words, there was no way any one religious community could have a monopoly on truth. But when she was in the big city, she felt grieved, this is her words, over the loss of God in her life. And she said, it was like breaking up with someone that you thought was your soulmate. It's for the better, it's for your own good, she remembered thinking, even though it's no longer made, even though it no longer made sense for her to believe. 
But still, she felt a gaping hole where church, her people, her psalms, her stained glass windows used to be. Then she read an article about Sunday Assembly. This is a community started in Great Britain in 2013 that has spread quickly across the Atlantic to her doorstep. Members gather on Sunday, sing songs, listen to speakers, and converse over coffee and donuts. Meetings are meant to be just like church services, but without God. <laughs> that's it. She thought, that's what I want. Founded by faithless seekers hoping to carry on certain aspects of religious life, the community, the moral deliberation, the rich sense of wonder, they were growing rapidly in the early years. Then congregations were heavily covered by media outlets. The hot new atheist church gushed a 2013 Daily Beast headline about Sunday assembly. Huffington Post noted that the number of assemblies had doubled in a single weekend in 2014. So here it comes, the demise of Christianity. Here it is. Atheist assemblies are going to take over the world. The media coverage emphasized the new community's high-level High-energy services, its celebratory message, and top-of-your-lungs group renditions of pop anthems such as Living on a Prayer. Ooh, yeah. Because if you're going to have church without God, why not add Bon Jovi to the mix? But even as the growth of the nuns has revved up in the intervening years, the growth of secular congregations hasn't kept pace. After a promising start, attendance declined, and nearly half of the chapters have fizzled out, including the New York one that Walford joined. Building a durable community of non-believers, it turns out, is more complicated than just getting rid of God. <laughs> I love this article. It's so funny. Even more challenging than the logistical barriers are the psychological ones. Linda Woodhead, a scholar of religion and culture at Lancaster University in Great Britain, told me that structured communities just aren't easy to form. I love this. Meeting, quote, she says, meeting in a building, listen to this, meeting in a building with the same group of people every week. I don't think there's any natural need for that, end quote, she said. Now, that's exactly how it is, friends. If you don't have God, okay, there's no reason to meet. <laughs> there really isn't. Now, why am I emphasizing this about the atheists? Because a lot of churches look just like this. Only they carry on the pretense of talking about God. That's the only difference. At least the atheist assemblies are honest. We no longer believe he does anything anymore. All right? So this is the thing. If your church doesn't have God moving, it's not going to be worth it. So why we have to go to the book of Acts is we've got to get reconnected with, with, our, with the Holy Spirit, with God at work in and among us. So we have the two parts of the book of Acts, Acts 1 and then Acts 2 to Acts 28. So let's finish off Acts chapter 1 today, and then we're going to get really into the rest. What happens when God actually invades the church? Okay. So Acts chapter 1, they decide to replace Jesus. Now, Jesus, not Jesus, Judas. There we go. Can't replace Jesus. <laughs> the disciples decide that they're going to replace Judas. Now, the question that I have is why? And this is an important question. And in fact, the question is actually more important than you think. Why would the disciples, when Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit, why would they get busy trying to replace Judas? Now, I have to tell you, we're going to read Acts chapter 1, 12 through the rest of the chapter. I'm going to tell you something. I am on shaky ground when it comes to my personal belief on Acts chapter 1 concerning this moment. Most, many Christians are divided by this, but I'm in the minority. Most theologians, commentators, read this moment in Acts chapter 1, and they think, 
No, this is what they should have done. Uh, it's right that they have 12 disciples or 12 apostles. You know, without 12, is not really right. And so this is right, and Peter heard from God, and he's even going to quote Scripture. And so this is a perfectly good moment. I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I don't think the choice of the disciples to replace Judas was actually God-inspired at all. Now, studio audience, pray for me. I'm on shaky ground here, okay? I am going to say this is my opinion. Now, it's right, okay, but it is my opinion, okay? I think the replacement of Judas was based on what I call an unhealthy obsession with doing church without God. And I only bring it up because, again, we're talking about this again and again because there's so many churches that are doing church without God, without God moving. And so we're going to see a couple of reasons why I think that the disciples said, look, we got re- we got to replace Judas. I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, and this is why I think it's a bad decision, the number 12 uh, for Jewish boys is a very important number. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know this. Actually, we just talked about this in the book of Revelation in the last season of the deep end. The number of 12 was the number of Jacob's 12 sons. Before, before Israel was Israel, the guy's name was Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons through four women, okay? Those sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Those tribes are to circle the camp of Israel while they wander through the wilderness, and then they are also divided up into the promised land, into 12 different sections, and there's a lot of You know, there's a lot of biblical text that centers on the importance of 12 tribes. So here's what I think. I think the disciples are looking at themselves saying, uh, we got 11 guys here, and 11 is not 12. (laughs) And I think they had a little bit of an inferiority complex, just to be honest with you. I think they're thinking, wait a second, God doesn't do things with 11 people. He does things with 12 people. And so they're probably jumping the gun here saying, we need a 12th. And secondly, I think that titles are very attractive to church people, okay? Like, they need to name another guy an apostle. And we're going to see what they do to do this. But here's the deal, and this is so true. I've been in church my whole life. Church people are obsessed with titles. They are. They are obsessed with titles. Like, you ever go to these church conferences where everybody has to be a reverend or a right reverend or a bishop or part of the presbytery? Or these pastors who are obsessed with people calling them pastor or reverend or father. Like, you know, I'm all for terms of respect, but sometimes a title can be an idol. Sometimes a title can be an idol. In other words, I'm only important when you call me pastor. Now, I am a pastor, but listen, I don't care what you call me. You can call me whatever you want. I am, not in, I am not impressed by titles, and I'm not impressed by initials after your name. I don't think that matters. I think you can have all the titles in the world and all the initials after your name, and when you don't have the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. But there's an obsession. There's an unhealthy obsession in the church with titles, org charts, and people being important. And so I thought that's another contributor to the fact that they need to replace Jesus. We need to name somebody. We need to call somebody else an apostle. Like, do you? I'm not sure if you do. If you read the book of Acts, I don't even see these apostles even being mentioned. Like, this is another misnomer about the book of Acts. A lot of people think the book of Acts is really, the title of the book is the Acts of the Apostles, but it's not. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. It's just called Acts. And So people say, well, it's Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's not that either. It's Acts of the church. This is what the church filled with the Holy Spirit does. This is what they do. They do stuff. They do incredible stuff. And the thing, is, the thing is, it's not even the Acts of the Apostles because outside of Peter and John, 
And James, you don't hear about any of the apostles ever again. Those are the only three out of 12, out of the 11 left over after Judas left. Only three of them are even mentioned. And by the way, Judas is killed fairly shortly into the book. I mean, James is killed fairly shortly into the book. And, and then kind of Peter kind of falls off the, the, the storyline, and John doesn't really appear after chapter 3. I mean, it's not the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Church. So titles don't matter. Being a part of the church matters. Being in Christ matters. And so don't get caught up in, I need to be a pastor. Some of you, some of you watching right now, you don't think that you're worth anything until you get the education or the degree or the title. And I want to say to you, God specializes in taking people without titles, without degrees, and without importance in the eyes of the world to do things that the people with the importance in the eyes of the world cannot do. That's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of the gospel. But I also think there's a third reason why they decided to replace Judas, and I think it's this. I think the defection of Judas had to be embarrassing to the 11 disciples. You think about this. Like, we don't think about it because it, got, it, it goes by so quick. It's over. But you got to think, they lost one of the guys who literally walked with Jesus. And if Jesus couldn't hold on to this guy, uh, what does that say about our movement? You know what I mean? I just think that there was a little bit of, you know, we're embarrassed here. Let's get 12. And here's what I think it comes down to. It comes down to when a church is motivated by titles or importance or when a church is in, uh, you know, tied to the past, like 12 sons of Israel, so we have to have 12 apostles, I think we just get busy. We get into church busyness that doesn't have anything to do with gospel mission. So I don't think it's a bad thing that they do this. I just think that they were off mission. I think that they were impatient. I think, you know, Jesus ascends. And by the way, church people are classically impatient because Jesus walks with them 40 years after the resurrection, uh, 40 days. He walks with them 40 days after the resurrection. He eats with them. He hangs out with them. He talks with them. He communicates with them. And then he ascends to the Father, and he says, before he, before he ascends, he says, wait for the Holy Spirit. And it's only 10 days. It's only 10 days. And they can't go 10 stinking days without having a church meeting. <laughs> and appointing another apostle. I just think this is what we do. We're classically impatient. But anyway, let's get into it. Let's understand some cool truths from this text. So verse 12 says this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, or the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Now, Sabbath day is a short walk because you, according to Jewish law, could only walk three quarters of a mile on the Sabbath. So he's basically saying they were right near Jerusalem. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait. So they go. And it says in verse 13, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. Now, if you'll pay attention there, there are 11 names. And the, t and the text is basically begging us to see that there aren't 12 anymore. There's 11. So what are they going to do with this? And what are they going to do? They're going to they're start making decisions before the Holy Spirit shows up. So verse 14, it says this. Now, Verse 14, all these were with one accord, uh, and they were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Okay, before we get to what I think they shouldn't have done, let's talk about the things that they did do that are good. Okay, this, I call this verse upper room living. And what does it say? First, First good thing, it says that they were with one accord. Now, that is a cool phrase. They were with one accord. The word in Greek is homothymodon, which literally means they had the same mind. They were united. They were totally focused together, right? That's a good thing. A good church is united in one accord. And here's the deal. Um, the devil, 
is going to give you an endless number of options for you to give up on being united to your church. He is never going to stop. His daily diet to church people, to Christians, is, you know, you really shouldn't go to that church, and here's why. Blah, 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 blah. And he'll just run that down. And you know what? If it doesn't work on day one, he'll just bring it up on day two, and then day three, and day three. And he'll just, what is he trying to do? He's trying to get you away from that one-mindedness. Because the devil knows better than the church people that when we're united, amazing things can happen. He, he knows better than we know, right? And so what I love about Upper Room Living here is that they did hang together. They, number one, they met together. Like they got together. Don't, don't try to tell me that there weren't some times there where they were ticked off at each other, okay? That, you ever read the disciples? They were always arguing with Jesus about who was the greatest. You think that stopped after they saw him rise from the dead? Heck no. That probably ramped up. They were like, now let's talk about who's the greatest, right? I mean, they were going crazy about positions and titles while they were walking with Jesus, okay? And so this, this is a cool thing, that though they may have had some difficulties and though they may have had some fights, they still got together. And Christian, I can't tell you this strongly enough. The church will let you down. Christians will let you down. Your church family will sometimes hurt you. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw the whole thing out just because you had one bad experience. Friends, I, I, get, I get so amazed at what people leave the church over. They leave the church over stupid crap. Like, I'm like, what are you, crazy? Like, one time, many years ago, I was a youth pastor at a church, and I was in the back of the sanctuary, walking out on the way out after service. This woman comes up to me. She's all frazzled. She's frazzled. I'm like, what's going on? I don't even know who she is. I've never seen this woman in my life. My life. She goes, I just want to tell you that I forgive you. And I'm like, for what? Who, who are you? I've never met you in my life. And she literally said, I walked by you at church the other day, and you didn't say hello. And I was just so mad. I didn't even come to church for a couple of weeks. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like that? I don't even know who you are. This church, It was a big church. I didn't even know who this person was. And one little snub, one little snub causes this person to not come to church? Oh, friends, this is... We got to grow up about this stuff like this. I, I have, uh, if I took the time to write down all the reasons why I shouldn't be in the church, it would, it would fill a book, okay, based on other people's behavior. Um, and that's just, it's just a baloney line. It's just a baloney line. I had a news article here. Um, it's pretty relevant to what I'm talking about. And so sometimes I'll just go to the news article. Basically what it was talking about, I don't have it up here on the desk. Basically what it's talking about is, the political right and left divide in our country, okay? The article says uh, left-leaning uh, Christians, left-leaning Christians are leaving Christianity. Why? Because of their right-leaning counterparts. <laughs> okay. If you're leaving Christianity because of somebody else's political view, you were never a Christian. I'm, I'm just telling you. <laughs> Why? Why does another Christian's failure cause you to give up on Jesus. That might be a sign that you never really loved Jesus. You just loved church busyness, which is what we talked about just a few moments ago, okay? But they were meeting together, and let's meet together. Like, this is what you should do. If you're part of a church and you say, oh, that got hurt at that church, or somebody did something in my church, you don't understand. Okay, I don't understand. But grace, friend, grace. Grace can either be our greatest weapon that holds us together, or judgmentality can be the weapon we use to divide each other. And I, I want to err on the side of grace. I don't know about you. 
but I think that you'll live a much happier, healthier life. Richer and fuller relationships will be part of your life if you just start living by grace. Get together at the church. Number two, they were praying together. So this is also important. They prayed together. There it says on verse 14. Uh, a church that prays together stays together, right? A church that's, that's uh, in one mind is in one mind because they spend time praying together. And then the third thing that they did was they studied the scriptures together. And we know this because in the very next verse, look what it says. Peter stood up, verse 15, among the brothers, the company of persons being about 120, and said, brothers, look at what he says, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Okay, so how does Peter find these verses about uh, what he's going to say is concerning Judas? Well, because while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, they weren't just twiddling their thumbs, and they weren't just getting together and having church services. They were in the scriptures. They were in the scriptures. Now, why do I point this out? Because some of you watching online, some of you watching the deep end, and you don't go to our church, you don't come to Water Church, but you go to another church, uh, and your church is dying, and it's not alive. I want to ask you a very simple question. Okay, this is a very simple question. Does the pastor open the Bible and read it and then teach it? Now, <laughs> to our audience members, you guys are like, well, of course. Of course they do. Of course they do. Okay. Lots of churches do not do this. <laughs> Lots of churches, the pastor gets up on the pulpit and he talks about the daily events and some virtues that we might want to practice. And, and uh, oh, by the way, I read this poem by Robert Frost and I will leave that with you and the Lord be with you. And everybody responds, and also with you, right? And, and everybody leaves. And no book was, no scripture was open. Nobody read the scripture. Nobody talked about the scripture. Nobody unpacked the scripture. And listen, God does everything he does through his word. Like we don't get creation without the word. The Bible opens up with God said and there was. It didn't say God blinked and there was. It didn't say God wiggled his ear and there was. It says God spoke. So what is the Bible teaching us right from page one? Everything that happens in God happens through his word. If, you're, if your church is not opening the Bible, it's just waiting to die. It's just waiting to die. But here's another lesson that I draw from this verse is this. Some of you are stuck in God's waiting room. Yeah. You're stuck in God's waiting room personally. This, this applies to you personally as well. Like, you might be waiting to get married. You might be waiting for that next job. You might be waiting for the big break or whatever it is. You're waiting, waiting, waiting. Or maybe you were heavily involved in ministry, and now the Lord kind of has you on the shelf of life, and you're like just going through the motions, and so you're just waiting. And, and here's what I would suggest to you. Do what the disciples did. When you are in God's waiting room, do not, do not neglect, number one, get to church. Get into a small group. Get into a community of faith that will feed you, that will love you, that will pray with you through that waiting room period. Number two, pray. Pray with other Christians. If you're on the shelf and you feel left out and you feel like God's not using you, talk to somebody who's a friend or a brother in Christ Jesus and let them pray for you and lead you forward through prayer. The power, the power of prayer, for I can't tell you, wherever two or three agree of binding anything on earth, it shall be done for them by my Father which is in heaven. Jesus said that for a reason. You need to pray with people when you're going through this stuff. And then thirdly, study the scriptures together. Like Get into the word. Sometimes when you're on the shelf, it is God giving you time to get into the scriptures and get rooted and grounded in the scriptures so that, listen, so that when you're off the shelf and you're in the hustle and bustle of life and you actually now do have the job and you do have the spouse and you do have the kid and you finally got where you wanted to go, you might not have the time that you had on the shelf to get into the scriptures as much. 
So I think about it like this, like some of you need to do this. Some of you need to learn when you're on the shelf of life to let Jesus be your absolute best friend. Just let, just, I remember this. I went through this myself because I was in um, college and I went through the summer. I was all alone. I had no friends. I was a weird, it was a weird summer for me. I was uh, supposed to intern for this church and it didn't, it didn't come through. And so I was kind of like working as a waiter, working late at night and everybody at the restaurant, they were all pagans. They were all drinking and partying after, you know, after uh, their shift. And I was a Christian. I was like, I can't go out. I can't do that. And so I would go home and they would go party. And so I had no friends, no Christians, no one. And I remember I was driving home in the middle of the night on this dark road, no lights, nothing, just my car, driving home at like one in the morning. And I just remember saying, Lord, you're my only friend right now. Can I tell you that that was one of the best seasons of my life? It wasn't when I was there, but it was now. I look back and I say, thank God for that. Because you know what? Me and Jesus got close. We got tight. And when you get tight with Jesus in the stuck moments of your life, in the shelf moments of your life, guess what that makes you for those non-shelf, non-waiting room moments? It makes you powerful. Because he's the, you know he's with you now. You've got a tight relationship with your big brother Jesus, okay? It's going to make you powerful later in life. Don't forsake those shelf moments. Don't waste them is what I'm saying. Don't waste Don't let the devil give you a bunch of opportunities to, to go and sin in those shelf moments, because that's what he'll come and do. If he can't get you to come out of the church, he'll get you to sin when you're alone. And so get in his word, get praying, get, get together with Christians on purpose. Okay, we got to get going. Verse 17, uh, this is continuing the story of Judas. For he was numbered among us and was allotted a share in this ministry. Now, and this is a little parenthetical mar- uh, moniker that Luke gives us in verse 18. Now this man, he's talking about Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Okay, so Luke wants us to remember what happened to Judas. What happened to Judas? Now, I want you to think about what what was just said. It says in verse 18, Look at it closely. This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Okay, think for a moment. Just think. If you know the scripture, if you know the gospel story, you know this, okay? Judas goes to the high priest for 30 pieces of silver, right? And then he sees Jesus get arrested. What does he do with the 30 pieces of silver? He doesn't buy a field. He throws the silver back at the chief priest. I actually have the story right here on the screen for you, just in case you didn't know. (laughs) Matthew 27, verse 3 and 5, it says this. Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed, I'm sorry, when he saw that he was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Then look what it says. The chief priest, taking the silver pieces, said, it is not lawful for us to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called field of blood to this day. So, i got a question for you. <laughs> is Luke mistaken? Because... Judas didn't buy the field, according to Matthew chapter 27. It was the chief priests and the leaders who got the silver back who bought the field. So the question that I have is, how did Judas buy a field if he gave the money back for betrayal? 
Well, here's the thing. You have to understand Scripture, interpret Scripture. Now, there's a lot to be said about Judas from the Gospels other than what we see right here. You have to remember, in the Gospels, Judas was stealing money the whole time he was with Jesus. Now, people don't know this, but it's true. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 6 says, Judas was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So guess what Judas was doing? Well, he was doing classic church secretary work right there. <laughs> classic church treasury work right there. He was, he was dipping. He was skimming off the top saying, let me have my little share. And all the disciples were aware of this. They were like, yeah, that's what he used to do. He used to take for himself. Guess what I think happened, actually? Here's how I think you reconcile these stories. What Judas was doing the whole time he was with Jesus was he was dipping into the treasury, lining his own pockets, and buying a field in the process while he was walking with Jesus. Think about this. Even today, modern Americans, how do you buy property? Usually, you don't have the lump sum payment, do you? What do you do? You go to a bank, you go to a mortgage company, you buy based on some kind of financing ability, and they loan you money, and then you pay in what? You pay in installments, right? That's what I think Judas was doing. I think Judas went and got himself a down payment on a field, and while he's walking with Jesus, he's making payments, payments from the Jesus offerings. Jesus gets the offering. Uh, Judas takes the skimming off the top and pays his monthly bill for the lamb. But here's the deeper question. Why would Judas buy a field? Why would he even worry about buying a field? He's walking with Jesus because he, Judas, was under the impression that Jesus was going to do what the disciples thought he was going to do, which we talked about last week. What did they ask him? And they saw him after the, after the resurrection. They said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the nation of Israel? In other words, are you going to bring back the glory of Israel, overthrow the Romans, and get us our home back? Guess what Judas was doing the whole time he was walking, the whole time he was walking with Jesus? He was setting himself up for having the good life in the kingdom Jesus was going to bring back to glory. This is a very important truth that we are unpacking here. He was prepping himself for what the Jesus movement could do for him and not worried about what the Jesus movement was really all about. And this brings me to a fundamental truth of a dying church. A dying church is filled with people who use the church's ministry for their own personal gain, their own agenda. Now, this has been happening since Judas. Okay, there's been a, a billion Judases. Not a billion, maybe about a million. Okay, a million Judases since Judas. And, and, and we could easily pick on the TV preacher who lines his pockets and, you know, sends you the little potion that you put under your pillow like the tooth fairy. You know, give me $1,000 and I'll send you this little hanky and then if you sleep on it, you'll be healed, right? By the way, we're going to do that next week on the deep end. Um, no, there, there are many people like that, but listen, there are many Christians sitting in churches every day that are doing the exact same thing. They're using the church for their selfish agenda. This is why the church has no life. This is what happens to a dying church because the church people start using the church to get what they want out of the church. And if you want to be a part of a dying church, that's recipe for disaster right there. Recipe for a dying church. Use the church for what you want the church to do. Like, for instance, those who want the church to promote their political point of view. Like, are we a left-wing church or are we a right-wing church? We are a whole bird church. That's what we should be, a whole bird church. <laughs> Jesus loves the whole bird, Right? There are those who want the church to accept their worldly standards. They want the church to capitulate the scriptures to the cultural trends of the day. 
They want to use the church for their own personal gain. They want the church to stay. This is a big one for me. This one, I, this one just drives me nuts. They want the church to stay small so that they know everybody. They want the church. I, I just don't want to. I want to know everybody. No, you want to know everybody's business. That's what you want to know. Okay. <laughs> you, want to, you want the church to stay, stay small so you can keep gossiping about everybody. All right. There are those who want the church to meet their needs, cater to their children, do their kind of ministry. Why? Because it's their church and they want the church to be there for them. And here's what the book of Acts is telling us. In BHS days, before the Holy Spirit days, a church without the Holy Spirit is a church filled with people who think that the whole movement of what Jesus is doing in the world is really about them. It's not. The church is not about you. I say it again, the church is not about you. The church is not about you. Don't make the church do what you want to do. Do what the church is doing. Like, get on board with what God is doing, all right? Anyway, let's go on. Verse 20, for it is written, this is now back to Peter's speech about replacing Judas. For it is written in the Psalms, may his camp become desolate, may there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Now, Peter does something cool here. Again, like I said, I'm on tenuous interpretation ground today. I'm in the minority of people who think that this was not the right decision, so just bear with me. But I will concede this about Peter. He's changed. He's a little bit more bold, isn't he? Like, look at how he says it. Uh, the scriptures must be fulfilled. Who, who talked like that before Peter? Jesus. Peter learned well from, from Jesus that all the scriptures in the Old Testament were pointing to this movement at this time in Peter's day. And I think that's cool. So let's give Peter props. I mean, he is quoting scripture and he's talking about how it needs to be fulfilled and has everything to do with Jesus. And, and the sooner, by the way, the sooner that you get to the point where you realize that the whole of the Bible is actually about Jesus, I'm telling you, your faith is gonna take off. The whole of the Bible is about Jesus. So anyway, he is, he is though, picking out verses that, uh, I don't know. I mean, I just, may his camp become desolate. May there be no one to dwell in it and let another take. Look at how short the passages are that he quotes too. I just think that he's doing something that a lot of Christians do with the Bible. A lot of people, not just Christians, a lot of people do with the Bible. I call it find a verse. <laughs> what, what, what do I mean by find a verse? There we go. Got a little graphic for you. Find a verse. Like a lot of Christians play this game. What do I mean by that? I mean that you want to do something and you find the Bible verse that gives you justification to do it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people love to do this, right? Like, so you want to date someone who's not a Christian. And you know, you know, the Bible's really not pro you dating people who aren't Christian. So you go flipping through your Bible and you're like, oh, wait a second. Here's, here's one. It says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. <laughs> well, this non-Christian is my neighbor and I'm just trying to love them. Hello, hello, right? And so there you go. And I'm doing God's will. That's called find a verse right there. Now, I found this one. Like, like suppose, like, this is going to be on the nose, so just bear with me. Suppose you are really into flashing people. Like, just suppose. <laughs> you can find a verse for that. Believe it or not, it's in Nahum. Nahum 3.5. Nahum, everybody's favorite Bible verse, Bible book, right? Nahum 3.5 says, I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. So there you go. There's justification for flashing people if you're into that kind of thing, you weird sicko. Um... Say you want to kill your cheating husband, right? You find out your husband's cheating on you. You want to kill him. You want to put him to death. Well, you can go to the Bible for that too. Deuteronomy 22, 22. 
If a man is found lying in the, with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, you shall purge the evil from Israel. So there you go. You don't just get to kill him, honey. You get to kill the mistress too. There you go. Kill him and the floozy, okay? Say you want to kill your rebellious child. Deuteronomy chapter 21 says if your son is rebellious, bring him before the elders of the church and everybody throws stones and kills him. There you go. I mean, seriously, maybe you want to justify being a bully. Matthew 5.39 says, if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. So you slap somebody around, you say, hey, eh, eh, the Bible says, turn the other cheek, come on, right? You could justify anything if you do the find verse game. And, and this happens with a lot of other things. Like, Say people want to justify polygamy. So what do they do? They go to Jacob, they go to Abraham, they go to David. They say, see, they had multiple wives and, and God was okay with them. Well, yeah, but you understand how to read those stories? You ever read what happens to those guys with multiple wives? It goes poorly for them. It does not go well. Like, they do not have a happy marriage. Or people who want to, this, this is a big one for our day and age, people who want to justify homosexuality by talking about David and Jonathan's love for each other. This is a big one. Or Ruth and Naomi. Like, wait a second. <laughs> Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law. That's just sick, okay? That's just like on a couple of levels, that's just, that's just uncalled for. And David and Jonathan, come on, really? You think they're going to be like homosexual lovers? Seriously, if David was a gay man, he wouldn't have slept with Bathsheba. He would have killed Bathsheba and slept with Uriah, okay? <laughs> I mean, if anyone, is a, if anyone is an on-point heterosexual in the Bible, it's David. I'm just saying. Guy had hormones. Let's just be honest, okay? But this is nothing new to the church in, in <laughs> King Henry VIII's day. King Henry VIII, you know, the infamous <laughs> leader of the Church of England. <laughs> he had all, all, those, uh, all those wives. You know, this is funny. Uh, King Henry VIII was infatuated with Anne Boleyn and wished to have his marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled. Uh, and so Catherine had been married briefly to his brother until his brother died. And so Henry, Henry justified annulling the marriage based on Leviticus 18, which reads, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. So he literally takes the Bible, finds a verse, and you know, manipulates it to say what he wants. It's a very easy and common practice today. It is, is what happens when you don't listen to the Holy Spirit. It's what happens when you play church is what happens every day in dying churches and in lifeless Christians. You make the Bible say what you want it to say. You don't let the Bible say what it wants to say to you. So let's close up this passage. Let's get, let's get to the end of this. Uh, verse 21. So one of the men, uh, I'm sorry. So one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, um, for one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Now, I want you to think about the qualifications because these are the qualifications that, not Jesus, remember, the only thing that Jesus said to do was what? Wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing he told them to do. And they got to get busy picking somebody else to replace Judas. Okay, so... Think about the qualifications that they lay out. The qualifications are, basically, if you read it there, he's got to be just like us. Like, let's like really simplify it. <laughs> if this is not classic churchianity, I don't know what is. Because this is what I think happens to us. We want to disciple people. Okay, this is what a dying church does. 
but they have to be just like us. Like, oh yeah, we want any, we want we want people to come to our church as long as they're like us. We want people, oh sure, come, but wait, wait, not some people, just the people that we really get along with. Like, and that's what they basically said. We want somebody who's been there the whole time since John the Baptist, taken up from us. Uh, and 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 unfortunately, this is what happens with a lot of churches. We want to do church, but only with people who look like us, act like us, and think like us. And that's not the mission of Jesus. Remember. In Luke chapter 9, verse 49, look at this passage. It says that John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he does not follow with us. He's not one of ours. He's not our group. He's not in our church. Look what, look at what verse 50 says. But Jesus said to him, don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. In other words, so what that they're not like you? So what that they're different than you, okay? I was, when I was in youth, when I was a youth, when I was a teenager, my youth pastor was a Jesus hippie. I don't know if you guys remember this. Jesus hippies were people who were saved out of um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the 1970s. Well, in the 1970s, this actually happened amongst the hippies, like it's happening with Kanye West and his gang right now. It happened in, this hip, in, the, in the rock stars of the, of the 70s uh, in, in, in Southern California. One of the guys that was saved during the Jesus movement in the 1970s was named John Wimber. John Wimber was one of the original members of the Righteous Brothers Band. This is pretty cool. One of the original members of the Righteous Brothers Band. He actually was their manager. Got radically saved. Went to church in his sandals with his long hair. Guess what you think that guess what they did to him? Get out of here. What are you doing? You don't look like us. You don't act like us. You don't you don't you don't seem churchy. So he got hooked up with the Calvary Chapel movement. Then he got hooked up with the, the uh, Foursquare movement and the and the Vineyard Church movement. And this guy, John Wimber, literally changed Christianity. This guy who didn't look churchy, God raised up in the 1970s, 1950s, and 1670s, uh, 60s and 70s. Literally, through his leadership, the Vineyard Movement, which is a small group of churches in Southern California in the 1970s, spread across the world and is in almost every country to this day because of a guy named John Wimber, a former hippie that other churches thought he's not churchy enough. Ladies and gentlemen, never Try to do church with people who are just like you. God has a funny way of picking people who aren't like you. Anyway, they prayed, verse 24, and they said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, the apostleship from Judas, which he turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with all the 11 apostles. Okay, I just want to conclude my thought of this thing not actually being the right decision by saying this. They cast lots. They cast lots, and I only bring this up because the only other time casting lots is mentioned in the Scriptures in the New Testament is when the soldiers are dividing up Jesus' garments at the cross. Not a good correlation. <laughs> Not a good, you know, equivalent moment in the, in the New Testament. Now, here's the thing. At the end of the day, God does get his 12th disciple. He does get his 12th apostle. We're going to have to wait a little while. But here's my final argument for why I think this was the wrong move, okay? Um, because Jesus himself personally called all these disciples. Think about that. The 11 that were left were personally called by Jesus. That's the qualification that they left out in their discussion about who they should pick to replace Judas that Jesus himself came and got them. And we're going to find out that in Acts chapter 9, Jesus comes back from heaven 
to find himself that 12th apostle and calls him personally. We know him as Paul the apostle. And in reality, Paul is exactly the opposite of Judas. Judas goes this way, walking away from Christ and into anger and hatred about what Christ is doing and into despair and ultimately into hell. And Paul the apostle comes exactly from that side, doesn't he? He comes from hating Jesus and wanting Jesus dead. And, and sure enough, goes exactly the opposite. He is literally the exact polar opposite of Judas, meaning this. Listen, this is the final thought that I have. When things aren't right, when things aren't going well, when things you want to do something because you're just, you got to be busy, you got to get something fixed. Listen, don't be in a rush to fix through human ingenuity what God will accomplish through his Holy Spirit. You're on the shelf of life. You're impatient. You're not feeling like, oh, things are not moving in the way I want. Well, don't worry about it. God has a way. God's spirit is enough. Give him time. He will do his work. Jesus does not need you to fix things all the time. Sometimes he just needs you to listen and rely on the Holy Spirit. And so my last question is this. Are you, are we, are we relying on our own ideas or relying on the Holy Spirit? And next week we'll talk about what happens when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of the church things start changing. It's awesome. It's powerful. Let's not be busy with church stuff, right? Let's not be busy with endless lists of things that we think people should do to be qualified to minister for God. Let's be a church. Let's be a people. Let's be a movement that believes God can do great things with someone who receives the Holy Spirit. Connect with the deep end uh, all week. I want to remind you, youtube.com slash thedeependtv, facebook.com slash thedeependtv, instagram.com slash thedeependtv, and twitter.com slash no the there, just deependtv. Follow us, like us. If you do so, you are definitely going to heaven. Also, check us out online at thedeepend.tv. I hope you enjoyed tonight. I will see you next Tuesday night on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.